Hello, and welcome back to the Blitz Scalable Venture Deals podcast. I'm Chris Yeh, and as always, I'm joined by my partner, Scott Johnson of Blitz Scaling Ventures. And today, we're going to be looking at deals that were announced in February of 2023. So, Scott, let's begin with the broader context. What was February of 2023 like in comparison to January? What are the trends that you're seeing? Well, there were more deals announced in February than there were in January. January was 55, February is 70. So that's an uptick. I just looked at March. We're in March, in the early 20s of March, and it's about 40 deals. So that's tracking to about 60. So I think we're in a trading range here between 50 and, and 75. And we'll see if we can break out of that in the coming months. But you know, right now, I, I think it would be remiss, Chris, if we didn't mention that Silicon Valley Bank collapsed just a week ago, and that could cast a pall on deal activity, I think. You know, what, what, what's your reaction to that? Well, I think it definitely casts a pall over deal activity because it dramatically increases the perception that people have that there's risk out there right now. And when times are risky, people tend to pull back. I mean, there's a reason why we saw declines in investing already. The declines in the market made people feel like things were riskier, made them feel poorer, made them less likely to invest. And bank structure, bank failures and bank industry turbulence just contribute to that. Now, do I think it should actually have a major impact? No, the US government did the right thing. They backstopped the depositors. Nobody lost money other than Silicon Valley Bank shareholders and as in debt holders. And so as a result, it really shouldn't have that big an impact. But again, once the uh, Pandora's box is open and people feel like, hey, maybe banks aren't safe, that creates uh, psychological conditions that would tend to reduce investing. So that is an issue that we're going to have to work through. And the only question is, is it going to be a small impact or a large impact? Yeah, uh, it really was an unsettling time the last week has been very unsettling for the entire VC community. So let us hope that we can move beyond that and that regional banks do well. I think there's something unique about venture bankers because they have just large depositors. There are very few small depositors. The loans that they tend to make are not typical bank loans. So I think it should be confined to the sort of VC banks and the other regional banks should be okay. But we'll, we'll have to see how this all plays out. We're still in the early innings. Although it does feel like things have settled down a lot already. Um, okay, so statistics wise, as I said, it was 70 deals, which is a, you know, a good pace, but off the 100 or so that was two years ago. And then certainly off the, the almost 150 average that we were at a year ago. So, you know, I guess that's two years ago and three years ago. Sorry about that. Uh, 20 and 21 were very busy. 2022, of course, began the down the downturn. Non-US deals were 21. Uh, that's a typical percentage, a higher percentage of seed deals this time around. So 40% of the deals were seed deals. Uh, last month, it was 40% were Series A. But still, you know, that concentration on the early stage is, uh, is a little higher than it was in past years. So money's moving. It's moving at the early stages. And of course, the usual reminder that many, many, many deals are unannounced because they're inside rounds, they're defensive, people aren't bragging about their financing, so they don't get press released. But it is, um, 
very common for investors to back their companies and for companies to delay their financings and not do an inside round and just wait out the storm. And that eventually will end because either you need to do a, a deal with outside money or you go out of money, you run out of money. Uh, insiders won't keep companies going forever. So we'll see what happens in March, April, May. But I, th I think you know if the market doesn't turn to some degree in March, April, and May, then you're going to see some defensive financings coming across the wire. And those are going to be outside lead and the, the prices are going to be very much down from their prior rounds. Yeah. And again, this is also probably one of the reasons why we've seen a decline in later stage financings, because the clearing price for those financings is still not there. The zone of possible agreement is minimal because companies are desperately trying to avoid those down rounds. And yet investors, new investors, logically say, hey, listen, we're not going to pay the kind of valuations that you had two years ago. Yeah, they're going to walk in and structure the hell out of it, right? They're going to come in and say, oh, well, we can do a 2x participating round here at the last round price, and we'll put in $100 million. And that essentially layers $200 million of preference above everybody else's money coming out of a deal at exit. So it's, if people are pretty confident the company's worth more than $200 million, you could come in with a deal like that at almost any valuation and de-risk it for the new money and make it enormously risky for the old money. But at least the entrepreneur says, yeah, we did a flat round. So I, I, um, I expect some structure to be added to a lot of these rounds. We saw it when people were trying to get unicorn valuations, they do anything to get a billion dollar valuation. And there was heavy structure around those, uh, you know, even it, it, the uh, conversion rights around IPOs and there's all kinds of fancy stuff going on in those term sheets to prop up a value, which is, you know, uh, essentially the valuation for the prior rounds goes down, but people don't yeah. don't talk about that in their press releases. Um, now, I was very skeptical of people doing structured rounds just to achieve that unicorn status. I thought that was foolish. Is it a is it always a bad idea to do structured financings, or do you think that there's a place for them in this current set of market conditions? Well, sometimes you just have to do it to get any new money in at all. But mm -hmm. if you're doing it purely for valuation reasons, then, you know, it, it's, uh, it's almost well, always a bad idea, <laughs> unless you think everybody's going to convert to common in the end, because your company's going to perform so well. I, I really, I'm very skeptical. So do you think people would be better off taking the hit on a down round then? Uh, almost always. And, and almost yeah. always it's a good idea. Like it's, it's very advantageous for entrepreneurs to get the new money to cram down the existing lick pref. I mean, if you, if you're sitting on 500 million in lick pref and you can get the new investor to knock that down to 100 million and do a pay to play round, then you can get the new investor to also re up the, the management shares. You can wipe out departed founders. There's a, there's a whole lot of benefit to the ongoing management for resetting the cap table and resetting the preference. So there, it, it can be good if you're not one of those people getting crammed down and you're not a departed founder. Right. And this is part of the reason why venture firms have reserves so they can participate in these kinds of events along the way. I mean, obviously we often say, well, the reserves are to be able to bet on the winners, Sometimes the reserves are to be able to continue to make those pay to play rounds happen. 
Yeah, and I've never seen the data on whether participating in the pay-to-play rounds pays off. I think it's it's just emotional. Like I'm not going to let these guys come in and take all my preference away. So I'm going to. What's your experience? I mean, you've I'm sure you've had this happening. Your long and distinguished career. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's the ones that never do a defensive financing that end up making all the money. And if you find yourself defending, it happens. You can absolutely, there's, uh, there's one specific example I'm thinking of a company called InfoMatch that did a couple defensive rounds and they fought and fought and fought. And then they had an awesome exit and it was biggest win for uh, my friends in DC had a great win on that company. And so it, it can be good. But that's, I, I fear that's the exception that usually when a company starts doing defensive things because it's desperate for money, that means the performance is not as good as it should be and tough to turn that kind of thing around. And yet at the same time, as an investor, you may feel like you need to, to participate, not just because you're throwing good money after bad, you don't want people to come in and take all the value away, but also because you want to make sure that the founders and other investors feel like that you are supportive and that you're going to be reliable when times are tough. Is that a consideration that goes into it? Uh, it? It sure is. It's a terrible signal if the lead investor on the inside says, no, you guys go ahead. We're going to sit this out. It, 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 the round can still get done, but that's a bad signal. So it's, yeah. it's not interpreted well. Got it. So the other thing is I've been traveling around to various conferences here in the Bay Area, elsewhere in the country. And one of the things I've been hearing is, for the most part, people saying, hey, there's a massive slowdown in venture capital fundraising. And I think that's reflected in the numbers of the announced venture capital fundraisings, not of startups, but of the venture capital funds themselves. And even though there is this massive overhang of dry powder, if the money going into the venture industry craters, doesn't this have an impact as well, sort of extending this venture drought, if you will? Well, like past droughts, there is still fundraising happening. It's the top names that hold a lot of power over the LP community that if they come knocking and saying, it's time to speak for your allocation, here's how much you get. Uh, And then you either speak for your allocation or you lose that relationship with that investor, then you value that relationship. So the LPs will say, okay, we'll take it. And those types of funds tend to use up all the oxygen in the room. So they come, like Sequoia comes out and says, all right, you know, we've got these five regional funds and they're coming to market and here's, here's your allocation. And you kind of have to say yes, or you lose your relationship with Sequoia. Well, all the money that might've gone to an emerging manager or all the money that might've gone to other relationships will go to that one. So to the extent that your equity portfolio is not as valuable, your overall portfolio is not as valuable, and your venture portfolio is now too big a percentage of your overall asset base. You the so-called denominator had, effect. Yeah, yeah. You kind of already had no room for new managers anyway. You couldn't add any names. It's questions which ones are you going to subtract. So that leads to a flight to quality, quote unquote quality which is usually the top brand names. So if you're a brand new fund looking to raise right now, 
then it's going to be hard. You're going to have to go well outside the traditional LP community to find people who are interested in your story. And your story better be good. It better be something like ours, where it really stands out and you've got a true advantage that you can point to and, and hopefully some track record that you're bringing. And a reason why people think that in this more defensive climate, they're better off giving you money than everybody else that's asking for it because there are a lot of people out there asking. Yeah. And by the way, one of the things that helps us is the fact that we tend to co-invest with these big name funds. So the people that are still able to get money in are the people that we will tend to work with and will tend to have you know, relatively more resources during bad times. They'll still have fewer resources on an absolute sense, but in a relative sense, they probably become more powerful during these times. Well, yeah. I mean, we've said this before, syndicate quality becomes an enormous differentiator for companies. Suddenly yeah. you're the company that's probably going to be able to raise money. And so people feel like it's less risky to put money into a company that has this deep pocketed backing of firms that can reliably raise new funds. So there's, um, as an entrepreneur, it becomes even more important to get one of these recognized names in as your lead investor and involved in the, in the company as an investor in any way, because others will be more comfortable following that that brand and a lot of these party rounds of people who are just throwing a little bit of money in and pooling it together and nobody's really the lead and no, not really recognized names. That's, uh, you know, entrepreneurs are going to take the money from the deeper pocketed investor because the signaling there will give them comfort, give follow-on investors comfort, give employees comfort that they can join the company. It's going to have some staying power. So all the reasons that we have focused on syndicate quality since the beginning of our fund are, you know, those are even more impactful now. Well, speaking of syndicate quality, that brings us to our potential blitz scalers for the month. How many do we have and which one would you like to talk about first? Well, of the 70, we found four and we had four last uh, last month as well of the 50. So four is, you know, kind of a typical number. And we are going to talk about a company called Magma and it's from India and they scored an 80. And remember, 80 is our cutoff. If you get 79, then nope, you're not a blitzscaler. If you get 80, then suddenly, yes, you are. And we've designed our scoring system. So it's actually really hard to cross that, cross that threshold. And this one made it. And what they do is they have a network of suppliers to factories. And then they have, uh, so material suppliers, you know, like all the sort of raw material stuff. And then also a network of buyers. So if you're a, a manufacturer, you can grow your business using Magma. It's a seed round. So very early here, and they've raised a small amount of money. It's, it's just $3 million in this round, a total of 4 million raised. General Catalyst came in and led it. So they have you know a, a really good lead investor. And there's some other sort of other accelerator types that are in the round and you know it's a small amount of money they're just getting going but we had a long talk about this one in our partner meeting and decided that it really does have a nine out of ten for winner take most so it's not ten out of ten but if you're a supplier and your uh, manufacturer says i need you to be on this magma network 
please, before we do business, then you're going to sign up. And if you as a supplier like that, then you go to your other manufacturers and you say, you know, I'm working with Magma with these other guys and it's really making my business better. So could you also sign up? And it does become a winner take most dynamic there where the more people that are on a particular uh, set of rails for communication, then the more valuable that overall network becomes. So we did decide that they get a nine out of 10. It's not a 10 out of 10, you know, it's because you could have more than one of these, I guess, but it's really nice the way they've set it up. And why don't you talk about viral growth? Yeah, so I think that it's important to note when it comes to this winner-take-most market dynamic that it meets some of the criteria that classically speaking, I've said, contribute to a marketplace being winner-take-most. These are larger transactions, they're high-consideration transactions, and there is differentiation because you're talking about different factories and how well they're going to be able to do this. So I think that that's why we end up with a 9 out of 10 as opposed to something lower. The reason it's not quite all the way to a 10 out of 10 is because they have been doing business like this before. The ideal is something like an Airbnb where people never did any kind of business before and all of a sudden this is the only way they can do the business, which is even better. The virality stems from many of the same dynamics. If in fact the factories are telling all their suppliers to get on, if the suppliers are telling all their factories to get on, if the factories are telling their buyers to get on, if the buyers are telling all their factories to get on, all of these things contribute to the viral growth. It's not consumer viral growth, it's B2B viral growth, but it is nonetheless true growth. And we gave it a nine and nine, which is enough to be able to overcome a few other things along the way. Uh, it is super early. As you mentioned, they've raised less than $4 million. And so that we looked at the CEO, who's a very young guy, just recently graduated from college, obviously very bright, but inexperienced. And so at this stage, we're not going to give a higher product market fit range than maybe a seven, because we still just don't know what's going on there. But we are going to give it top marks for market size and gross margin, because this is a marketplace that is covering ex an extremely large market. And the only other thing is we're going to take them down a little bit on org scalability because in these kinds of marketplaces, it often requires high touch at the beginning to be able to bring on board the factories and the suppliers. This is not just like a consumer coming on board. There's real paperwork and stuff involved. And so it's a nine instead of a 10 on scalability. But that still adds up to an 80 and it still makes it the sort of interesting company that we want to take a look at. Yes, indeed. So that's Magma, a, a nice marketplace business out of uh, India. And next, we're going to Tazapay. And Tazapay is based in Singapore. And guess what? It's a fintech. So it has pay in the name. So you might have guessed that. Uh, it's the Sequoia Fund in East Asia that has led this round. And that's why they showed up on our radar. And they've done a $17 million A round. So a total of 22 million that they've raised. So they've made some progress so far. And this name is familiar, Chris. I swear we've talked, we've run across them in the past, but I, they haven't done a round in a while. So here, here we are with Tazapay and it's, you know, it's essentially transfer-wise for B2B payments. It's They have uh, local banking relationships in hundreds of company, uh, countries. And if you want to send some money from the United States to some random other country, 
then you could try to use the SWIFT network and do a wire transfer, or you can use something like Tazapay, which will credit the bank on either side and then do a local bank transfer in the local currency on the other side. So you, you save a, a whole lot of, of work in the wire and cost in the wire and delay in the wire. So it's, it's just a, a better solution. It's a little bit like uh, Western Union, uh, but scaled up for business and uh, fairly, fully yeah. automated. So we like it, but why is it a blitzscaler? Yeah, so it's extremely exciting because obviously, first of all, it's a payment network. And the payment network becomes more and more valuable the more people who accept or send payments on the network. So that's why there's a network effect associated with scale. It's also the case that as you expand that economy of scope, you have more and more countries. You know, when you have more and more countries, it's better for people to join you rather than somebody who's only in a couple of countries. And so you have the resources to have that scope and other people don't. That's another competitive advantage that goes your way. And then finally, as you have these customers, you can start to add and sell on more services. So one of the things that we saw on their website is the fact that they will do escrow services as well to make it even lower risk to do this kind of business. And as a result of that, that also is another thing that encourages people to use the service and, and ties them into it. So that is all very exciting. Uh, in terms of winner take most, that's why we gave them a nine out of 10, which again, not as high as some of these consumer payment systems, but it's still pretty high because it's still less hassle. There may be alternatives, but it's less hassle. And then there's the viral growth of distribution. So we did not give them as high a mark here. We gave them an eight. And as we've discussed in previous episodes, a nine and an eight is the bare minimum. You have to get almost everything else perfect in order to be a blitz scale if you have a nine and an eight. But in this case, the key is there's some virality associated with, hey, uh, someone asks me if they can send me money via Tazapay, and I may say, oh, wow, that's cool. I may want to sign up for that but it is not as easy, right? There's a whole bunch of friction involved as people have to establish policies. And this is not a consumer who can just sign up for an account. These are businesses where there's going to be back and forth and compliance and whatnot. So we think that there's enough friction to knock it down to an eight out of 10, which means it has to score really, really well. Well, fortunately it does. Uh, and this is actually the thing that we debated. So market size, gross margin, scalability, those are all clearly 10. That's true for almost every payment system. The big question then is product market fit. This has to have a high product market fit. It has to score a nine out of 10 to hit the blitz scaling threshold. And the reason we think it does score that highly is because it is available in all these countries, 173 countries around the globe. That is not easy because when you want to do international payments, you don't want to have five different services for five different regions. You want to have a single service to make it convenient. So we think their ability to have that economy of scope already done is what gives them a justification for having that high product market fit. But we will need to talk to customers and assess whether or not that's actually true. And if the product market fit isn't there, it would actually drop out of the blitz scalability zone. Yeah, and that's, you know, this highlights part of our scoring, which is we're getting this company at a moment in time. And there are many companies that don't quite make it as blitz scalers get in the high 70s because product market fit just isn't there yet. So they, they could graduate, if they actually nail the product, then 
they could get a higher score. And so we kind of watch those companies and see if they're going to really make a great product that starts to take off. And if they do, then they get a higher score in product market fit, which, you know, we, we weight that pretty heavily. So just a couple points in product market fit can take you from a mid 70s score right up over 80. And in this case, we're taking a gamble and calling it a nine and giving them an 80 sort of in our speculative way before we really have used the product. Um, but we, we think there's a good chance that it's, it's a, it's a strong product that, that people will love and are loving. All right, next we right. have D scope and D scope. We come back to the United States, uh, their California business out of, uh, Los Altos. And they did a seed round of $53 million. Boy, it's just reminiscent of two years ago, right? So that's yeah, a pretty good size. That's pretty seed big. <laughs> yeah, hard to call that a seed in this day and age, but that's what we're calling it. That's what they called it. Uh, when you have G, uh, GGV and Lightspeed in the, in the deal, then you probably have a lot of money that can be put to work. And what do they do, Chris? Why? What do they do and why? Well, this is an interesting one. Uh, we use the analogy of saying that Dscope is a bit like Stripe in that they take something which is important, but which most people end up reinventing the wheel on and make it super easy to do. In this case, it is what we call sign up or authorization flows. So normally we have these account systems. People have to sign up, create a password, or maybe they get a magic link. Maybe they get a biometric sign. Maybe they have a one-time password. Maybe if it's enterprise, it's an SSO. Sometimes it's an authentication app, like the ones we have to use to access our bank accounts. All these things take a bunch of work to implement and people sort of implement them over and over and over again. And Dscope allows you to just drag and drop and create that in a very low code, no code way and integrate it into your site or service. So it's kind of like being Stripe. Instead of having to work like crazy to connect to these terrible payment gateways, you could just use Stripe. It plugs in super easy, ends up being very sticky because you don't want to go through all the work to rip it out. So that's why we're pretty exciting about it. But in order for this to work, it must score very well on product market fit. Other people had tried to do what Stripe had done in the past in terms of making it easy for people to make payments, but only Stripe actually did it on the product side. And so when we scored this, we said, if this were a Stripe-like product with a 10 out of 10 product market fit, then it would clear the threshold. Because is it truly winner take most? Well, you can come up with other ways to do your logins. Is there virality? Well, it's kind of hidden. I mean, the virality comes just from uh, uh, software developers talking with each other. There's no really built-in inherent virality or distribution. So in order to achieve an 80, it needs a 10 out of 10 on product market fit. We also dinged it a little bit on market size. We only give it a 9 out of 10 because guess what? Login, while it's universal, is not as valuable as actually accepting payment. So it probably would not get to be as big as Stripe. That's okay, because Stripe is pretty darn valuable. So this is another one where, yeah, we're scoring at 81, which is blitz scalable, but that score is a provisional score and it's based on making an assumption about product market fit. Yeah, and to be clear, this is a very uninteresting business if they don't nail the product market fit. 
they have to really nail it. It has to be enough better than everything else out there that everybody just flocks to it, adopts it, and and they it's it's so easy, it's priced so perfectly that everybody uses it immediately and it sort of takes the world by storm. And if it's not that good, then they need to make it that good pretty quickly. Then I mean, they got some money so they can reiterate on the product a little bit here. But that's how good it needs to be for this to be truly a blitzscaler. Because, you know, Stripe, like, it, there were a lot of uh, authorized.net was out there when Stripe was there. It just mm -hmm. really sucked. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are other solutions right now to creating a login screen. I'm sure there's open source. I don't know them all, but I'm sure there's open source stuff you can grab. And it's a pain. It's not e well supported. Is, is one of the common ones that people use. Okay. So, you know, there are others out there. So what, is this one really going to be that much better? I'm kind of skeptical, but I think it's, it's kind of important to talk about this because there is this kind of a business where you can get a product that is a component of an app that's super sticky. I think of app servers once upon a time and web logic and how you like that just gets built into every web app, then you can create a really valuable business that way. And it could scale enormously fast. Yeah. Okay. The other thing I would say about Dscope. Oh, the other thing that's the other thing I'd say about Dscope, and the reason why I'm a little skeptical about it is by this stage in its life cycle, Stripe was already something that people were talking about all the time on Hacker News and other places like that that I monitor. And I didn't really see people talking a lot about Dscope. I mean, the products that really work well are the products where the developers love them. And when they love something, they can't help but talk about it. And I just haven't seen that happening with Dscope yet. Yep. So it could be that the team's awesome. And this is a bet on the team. Uh, I, 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 time will tell. And I wish them the best of luck. Could be a great, great business. All yep. right. Uh, tip link. So this is a Web3 deal, kind of. It's, a, it's a, certainly a, a crypto deal. And there are a lot of people out there who don't use crypto because it's Geeksville. I mean, you got to, you got to download a wallet and then like connect your wallet to your bank account and then get some money in there. And da, 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 da. it's just, I remember when I signed up for Coinbase, it took a while and that was a ton of friction and it was, um, you know, it was not it's like the, the little deposit, the bank, like it's just, you know, it's, it's sort of like creating a, a Venmo account or anything like that. It, it, you got to really want to do that to, to do it. And if you haven't done that yet with crypto, then are you gonna? And why? And so these guys have come up with something really cool, which is that uh, you can send crypto to anyone just with a single link. Say, oh, you know, I'm going to pay you a little bit of uh, random coin. Here you go. You can you can uh, access it through this link. And somebody clicks on the link, and it'll sort of lead them uh, cleverly through the process of claiming their crypto. Now, if they actually want to use it, then they do have to go through some pain of of getting a wallet. But you can actually you know give it to them, and they can claim it, but without creating a a, a real full on wallet. And so that is a pretty interesting innovation and could cause crypto to go much more mainstream than it has so far. So we scored this one really high, but before we talk about the scoring, let's talk about the company. So it's a Sequoia deal and it's out of New York city. They did a $6 million raise. It's the first money they've raised. And so that makes it a seed round. So very early, 
but they must have a pretty good demo and some good early traction to get Sequoia's attention. And certainly have our attention, Chris. And, you know, why is that? Why do they get such a high score? This company scores 92. Absolutely. Well, this is, for all the reasons that we described earlier, we said a payment system tends to score very well, and especially a payment system that enables payments that never were possible before. So historically, it was really hard for people to accept payments, which is why PayPal was such a revolutionary thing. To accept payments, like to accept credit card payments, I went through this with one of my first startups. To go to authorize.net and work with a payment processor, you had to fill out all these forms. I had to literally show them a bank account balance that was $500,000. They knew that we were solvent. And even then, it was a massive pain in the ass. The payment gateway was something I had to manually process by hand. This is all horrendous. And that's why something like PayPal, which just made it easy for people to accept payments, made such a huge difference. This is the same thing. Crypto has always been hard to use. Nobody uses trans for transactions of any kind. Uh, I had a friend say that he was sending some crypto and it froze halfway and he had to, he was panicked because he realized if it didn't go through, he would lose hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he found some random person on Discord from the, the crypto company to actually then say, oh yeah, we'll unstick it. Like, this is the kind of amateur hours of craziness that, that happens. <laughs> and so- if crypto were just super easy to transmit, maybe it would actually be useful. And this is something where it's just clearly so hard right now, and this promises to make it super easy. And if it does, it is a winner-take-most system because everyone's going to want to use it. And it is a viral system because people actually use it to send things, much like they use PayPal to send money. And so this is really super-duper promising. It is early. So we only gave it a seven on product market fit. Again, payments... Uh, the devil can be in the details. In the case of PayPal versus Billpoint, it was making it easy to embed it into eBay. So we have to look at some of the details around how we were using it. But obviously, market size, 10 out of 10. Gross margin, 10 out of 10. Op scalability, 10 out of 10. We provided a, a slight ding to org scalability, 9 out of 10, just because things with completely new stuff like this do have a customer service need. And this is something that we've talked about in the context of the PayPal story before, how many people eventually PayPal had to have in customer service. But as a whole, that results in a 92. I mean, we've been bumping along at 80, 81 for these previous companies saying, oh, it might make it, it might not. This one vaults over and is clearly in the blitzscaling zone. But that doesn't mean it's a sure thing. Well, when you get high scores in the 90s, it's usually a social network or a payment network. And there's nothing new under the sun in that world. So you really got to scour the world for competition and understand why this is going to be the one that takes over the world. And if there's another one that's going to take over the world, then you have a business that's worth $0 billion instead of $100 billion. And that's not what you want. So you better really understand the competition here. And we looked around a little bit and sure enough, Venmo has a way to use crypto instead of dollars, uh, instead of fiat currency, if you want to do that. And that's in the US. We didn't looked overseas at all the other different options, but we know that there are many in Asia that are, that are very well penetrated. And so why not just use them instead of, uh, instead of tip link. And so it really becomes a conversation about competition and incumbents and the power of those incumbents and their ability to get people to use this type of functionality in their existing apps. And yeah. can they do that? Or does the world really need a new app and a new service that specializes in just this? 
And that may well be possible. And I could see why somebody would want to take a gamble that this is going to be the one, because if it is, then it's a huge win. Absolutely. And again, the, the return characteristics of companies can be very different. And even in the venture industry, even at the stage we're at, we know for a fact, not every one of our companies is going to succeed. And you have to have a huge outcome to overcome the risks associated with trying to do something new. But the potential of this outcome is a you know, $100 billion plus outcome if it becomes the thing that finally takes crypto mainstream. So that's why Sequoia is involved. That's why multi-coin capital is involved. That's why my old friend Sarah Guo with her venture fund is involved. Solana, the big, uh, the big crypto firm is involved, all of these things. So you know what? Uh, very interesting stuff. Again, we need to learn more about the competitive landscape. Maybe we need to talk to some of our fellows who are deep into crypto to understand how this works. But boy, promising. Yeah, this is the one we're gonna. This is one of the ones we're gonna keep a close eye on, and we should probably reach out and contact them early on in their career. Absolutely. So if they start really taking off, then we're right there to put some money in because. If this becomes the one, as we said, boy, it could be a big win. And you got it. We're we're not sort of a crypto fund by any means. We are, you know, we're interested in any company that's going to grow really fast, whether it has crypto underneath it or not. This one happens too, and it, you know, happens to be one that we we think has great potential, as you can tell. Yep. Excellent. Well, that does it for today's broadcast. We've gone through and looked at four companies: Magma, Tazapay. Descope and Tiplink. We had a nice discussion about the overall market conditions. And I guess what we are seeing is some recovery. And the big question will be, what will the numbers look like in the future? Will the banking crisis derail what would look like was a recovery? Or is it something where we're going to continue to see things come back? And only the next few months are going to tell. Well, working in our favor, in the in the favor of more deal flow and a Cambrian explosion is all of what's happening around AI. And so we didn't mention that in the context. We just sort of focused on the negative. Talking about the positive, there is such a fantastic ecosystem of innovation around these new large language models and the, the generative AI companies that are coming to life. And we're looking at a seed deal right now that we think is really cool. There is a lot of interesting activity and that could be the catalyst that really brings deal count back up from where it was in its uh, some sort of the depths of despair that we've seen in the last couple of quarters. Well, I can tell you that I am a small investor in one of my friend's AI companies. I spent some time with him yesterday. He's a fellow who's helped us out a lot with introductions to LPs and other folks like that. And he is in the AI space. He said the interest by investors right now is insane, which is good for somebody like me who invested in a prior round. <laughs> yep. Everybody wants to have their play because they're looking at open AI saying, shit, how did I miss that one? So that could be the how thing. How did I miss that, that one? Really... How did Reed Hoffman get all over that one? <laughs> <laughs> well, because he's best friends with all the guys that started it. That's not fair. Uh... Um, but to be fair, Vinod is in there too. And so that's... Uh, that's certainly a company that's changing the landscape pretty much single-handedly. So exciting stuff there. And let's wrap up for this month. Absolutely. So Scott, once again, thank you for coming in. Thank you everyone for listening. And we will join you again in a month to discuss the blitz scaling deals for March, 2023.